Welcome to the Rear Primary View, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zubkis. This week, Reorg Municipals reporter Marvis Gutierrez joins Tom Koslick, head of public policy and municipal strategy at Hilltop Securities, for a discussion about how the primary market performed in 2023 and what Tom sees on the horizon for primary issuances in 2024. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, December 18th. Welcome to another episode of the Reorg Primary View. I'm Marvis Gutierrez, a municipals reporter at Reorg, and I'm incredibly pleased to have Tom Koslick joining me today. He's the head of public policy and municipal strategy at Hilltop Securities. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So wanted to take a look at a couple things today as the year's coming to a close. We're all keeping an eye on what to expect for 2024. In your research, you forecasted roughly $330 billion of issuance for the municipal bond market, uh, primary market next year, the lowest since 2018. You know, before we get to the meat of the forecast, let's take a step back and talk about 2023. The market historically winds down in terms of issuance this next month, and we broadly have an idea on what to expect. Tom, what's your take on just the broad strokes of how the market has performed this past year? Have there been any highlights? Yeah, I think that for a lot of folks in the market, the uh, primary mar- the primary level of issuance has been a pretty big surprise. I'm going back to this time last year when uh, I'm remembering that issuance forecasts for 23 ranged anywhere from 350 billion to 500 500 billion. Uh, our issuance forecast was the one at the bottom, that 350, and that that forecast was uh, confusing. I think to some, I think that there were a lot of folks who were expe- who were expecting a lot more primary market activity, and. Uh, you know, again, even though I I was sitting in my chair around this time last year, uh, it just it, I didn't see catalysts that were going to really move issuance above what it is that we saw the year before in twenty you know twenty twenty two for example, and so uh, I was pretty comfortable saying that we were going to have uh, less issuance, and so uh, what's what has happened is that that's we were pretty much on track to get close to 350. It, it looks like uh, October issuance was pr- relatively heavy uh, for the for the year. It was uh, a little over 35 billion. That being said, when I I and I did uh, do a month by month issuance forecast um, back when I originally uh, published my 2023 forecast and. I was expecting October to be a heavy month. I expect I was I was forecasting October. I was I was forecasting 35 billion of issuance in October. So um, that wasn't a surprise to me. And uh, November issuance, it looks like it's going to be a little heavier than what it was that I was forecasting. Uh, I forecast 20 billion for November, and it looks like we're probably going to have 25 billion plus. That being said, I think that. I also included 20 billion for for December and I think that 
one of the things that might have might have been happening in October and in November is that some of that issuance that was expected to go in uh, potentially December uh, got pulled into October and November because folks just wanted to get stuff done at the levels that they were seeing. Um, and on top of that, uh, there's a Fed meeting in uh, in December and uh, most of the time, issuers will stay away from selling bonds then and there's also a lot of holiday activity in december and so uh december usually isn't a very heavy month um but i think that you know that said we are probably pretty close to getting somewhere between 350 and 360 billion for 2023 so let's go to your forecast what are the major drivers of that 330 billion in issuance what are you looking at and hoping for yeah. So when, when I do this, I break down uh, the new money issuance and the refunding issuance. The refunding issuance, uh, as you can imagine, is really interest rate driven. And so over the last year and a half, as interest rates have just skyrocketed, uh, refunding issuance I means some occurs, but nowhere near the level of refunding issuance that we saw prior to 2022. Um, and so most are expecting that interest rates are going to either, I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand that there are lots of people who have all kinds of opinions about the different potential interest rate and economic scenarios that we could see in 2024. What I'm assuming is that we're going to see something close to the Moody's analytics kind of low growth scenario. And in that scenario, there's going to be uh, still posit- lower, but still positive economic growth, number one. And number two, interest rates are re- still going to stay relatively high. Uh, they're not going to be as high in 2024 as maybe they were in all of 2023, uh, but they're they're going to come down slightly, but they're still relatively going to be high. They're not going to be, interest rates are not going to fall enough to uh, make it so there's a meaningful level of uh, refunding issuance that materializes. And so I'm still thinking, that refunding issuance is going to be, you know, not just low but relatively very low, and new money issuance. I, th- you know, on the other side, on the new money side, uh, economic growth uh, really helps drive what it is that we're seeing on the new money side, and also credit quality really helps drive what we see on the new money side. Back in 2011 and 2012, new money issuance, for example, just fell off a cliff. It fell off a cliff because of um, economic growth that just wasn't really meeting expectation, but also uh, state and local government credit quality was spiraling, spiraling down, I should say, spiraling down. And new money issuance fell significantly. It fell, um, if I remember correctly, well below $200 billion. And I think that uh, this year, new money issuance is going to be a tad lighter, uh, excuse me, in 2024, uh, new money issuance is going to be a tad lighter than we saw in 2023, but w- I want to make sure that I, I, I highlight to folks that I'm not expecting new money issuance to fall in 2024 the way that it did in kind of 2011, 2012. And one of the reasons for that is because credit quality still, in especially with state and local governments, is so strong. I mean, I've been talking about this golden age of public finance concept going back to 2021. And while uh, the... Uh, rainy day funds or reserve funds or general funds are not as uh, healthy as they were a year or two ago. 
but they're still close to uh, being as healthy as they have been. And one of the other things that I tell folks is that I've never seen state and local governments so prepared for a potential economic downturn if one does appear. Um, but, but yeah, the reason that I'm not expecting that new money issuance is going to fall off a cliff in 24 the way they did in 2011 and 12 is just because credit quality is so strong. Let's look at um, municipal fund flows. I know um, in like your recent research, you talked about how fund flows have like largely been negative for the past 11 straight weeks. I think I'm citing the recent one in November 17. Um, I guess my question is, you know, after the weeks of outflows, how do we get people back into the market or like still interested in munis or have they even left? I think that... Based on the conversations that I've been having with investors over the last several months, one of the things that I have come to understand is that there is a psychological component with what's happening. And what I mean by that is I think that going back over the last year and a half, investors have felt as though they there's been some misdirection and now they are scared to act. They're scared. They're they're trying to figure out and or time the market, and they're trying to figure out when it is that the Fed is going to be done. You know, they're trying to figure out if 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 rates are going to be even higher than where we get when we where we see things now, and whether and they're trying to figure out, you know, if that's the case, how long that could be. Whereas most of the economic scenarios that I, I'm seeing and I'm considering, and even the base case that I just mentioned is one where interest rates, they might not start, they might not start to fall as significantly in 2024 as you know in the, the, the path. They're not going to follow a similar path, a sharp path down like they did up, but they're probably going to start to fall. And uh, one of the things that I've been talking to investors about this entire year is that they shouldn't try to time the market, that they should they should be getting some investment dollars into the market at regular intervals so they can, uh, you know, and there are going to be peaks and valleys. But since this summer, I've been talking about these generationally attractive levels uh, that we're seeing with municipal yields. And I'm likening this um, I remember back in, you know, in 2011, when I was talking to investors about there, there were a lot of investors that were scared because of Meredith, what Meredith Whitney said on 60 minutes at the end of 2010. And I remember meeting with, it wasn't hundreds, probably dozens of investors talking them kind of off the ledge and, and, you know, making it so that they didn't sell their municipals. And, you know, that there were so many investors and financial advisors I met with after that who said, you know, thank you, Tom. We really appreciate that. We would have we would have lost a lot of money if we would have sold. Um, and I, I'm kind of like this is almost it's a similar situation where I think that what's going to happen is in 2025, 2026, people are going to look back on what's happening at the end of 2023 and 2024. And they're going to come back to me and say that that was just that was that was a great um that was great counsel. It was really good to hear. We needed to hear somebody who was telling to tell us, don't time the market, take advantage of these generation generationally attractive yields uh, while they're here, because they may not, they may not be here for a long period of time. Perfect. I know we're sort of talking about this throughout the podcast, but what are the major narratives that you think will guide the primary market in the next year? Whether 
we sort of talked about it, but, you know, the high interest rates, the low new money issuance. I know, for example, this past year was a big year for airport financing following the sector's dip during the pandemic. Is there anything you're looking at? Any major narratives for this next year? So I think that one of the major narratives where public finance is concerned that's going to continue is going to be the uh, positive and negative impact from uh, Washington, D.C., whether it be political or fiscal policy related. You know, as I think back over the last five, six years, if not if not the last kind of decade or so, the more impactful uh, themes that have really m- moved the market one way or the other are have you know come from DC. Uh, the you know the twenty twenty one uh, Recu Plan Act money that was a positive. I mean, it's really propped up state and local government credit. I'm th- also thinking about the twenty seventeen Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I mean, that really scared a lot of folks on the issuer side. Uh, there was talk in October and uh, November of 2020 of 2017 about private activity bond issuers potentially losing the ability to sell tax and bonds. Uh, that was a big uh, potential scare. And one of the things I think r- really uh, also scared folks was that issuers lost the ability to sell tax and bonds Um for advanced refundings. And and so I think that the presidential election that's coming up next year and then the uh, midterm elections that are going to follow, I think that that coupled with the uh, declining uh, credit quality of the U.S. is going to really uh, make it so deficit reduction uh, themes are going to uh, themes are going to be on the table for sure. And I think that one of the things that folks don't recall uh, accurately is that the municipal market lost the ability to sell tax-exempt uh, bonds for advanced or fundings back in 17, not because of deficit reduction, but because of a policy choice. And that's a very important distinction to make uh, because to me, because of that policy choice, it, that makes it so it's going to be even easier for lawmakers in D.C. to potentially uh, curb or even eliminate the tax exemption for private activity bond issuers or others. And so, um, I th- again, I'm get, kind of getting back for the big picture. I think things in Washington are going to help drive things. I think that uh, what's happening in the housing market is very interesting to me. That's definitely something that I'm watching with regard to what could be happening with state and local governments over the next couple of uh, over of years. Uh, also, technology. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but uh, I'm always impressed with the pace of technological change. But it also seems that just in the last year or two, uh, the pace of technological change has just seemed to jump even more. And it just seems as though, whether it be things about art, uh, themes about artificial intelligence or or, or other technology, uh, the electrification of um, you know the grid uh, and or other business. I mean, these are things that I think over the next you know for the rest of this decade are going to continue to to drive what's happening. It is that what's happening in public finance. Perfect. And in wrapping up. Um... 
just one last question. You always frequently touch about this concept of, you know, the golden age of public finance. How are we looking at in terms of, you know, credit quality for state and local um, governments? You know, how are states budgeting um, for this next year? I know, how is it comparing towards prior years? So one of the things that folks are quoting to me and have been quoting to me for a lot of 2023 is that state and or city revenues are down and or housing prices are down. And oftentimes that is true. But what folks are really not uh, accurately paying attention to is how high state and local, rev state and local revenues rose kind of 2020, 2021, sometimes even into 2022, uh, and looking at how it is that even though housing prices might have, there might have been some volatility in certain regions, um, housing prices going back to 2019 at the beginning of 2020 are up, still up relatively significantly. And that's really what it is that I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is not just a a quarter to quarter, or even just a year to year comparison. What I'm looking at is I'm looking at an overall trend of uh, of revenue and spending. And I want to make sure that state and local governments are structurally balanced. And that doesn't just happen kind of quarter to quarter. And oftentimes doesn't just happen year to year. And so if there was a situation where there was a state or local government that uh, was not structurally balanced right now. That's definitely something I'd be, and I'm not saying that there aren't some that are not structurally balanced there uh, because one of the things that is clouding the landscape is that there was so much uh, fiscal policy that came uh, that, that has helped state and local governments in 2021, especially that it is analysts to be able to determine if budgets are structurally balanced but that being said, the the, the point, the, the kind of level of, of credit quality of where it is that state and local governments started 2022, started 2023, and or are starting 2024, while 2024 might not be quite as strong as 23 and 22, it's still relatively healthy. You know, it's still much more healthy than what we saw most, in most cases in 2019. Um, there are a lot of folks who didn't realize that uh, even as economic, even as budget, state and local government budget started to recover in 2015, 16, 17, that in 2018 and 2019, there were several large states that were structurally imbalanced and were making significant cuts across the board. Um, and that, and I think that what's going to happen is that, and one of the things that I'm watching out for is I'm watching out to make sure that state and local governments are being realistic in 2024 and being realistic in 2025 of and so they and i'm making sure that they can balance their expenditures with their ongoing revenues and for the most part i'm seeing that you know for the most part i am seeing that okay well thank you so much tom for joining us thank you very much for having me i appreciate the conversation for in-court coverage this week we take a look at pennsylvania real estate investment trust yellow core the WE Company, Rite Aid Corps, SVB Financial Group, Amherst, Premier Brands, formerly known as Nine West, and the latest news in the conflicts of interest scandal tied to former bankruptcy judge David R. Jones. Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, or PREIT, 
a Philadelphia-based publicly traded real estate investment trust specializing in the ownership and management of shopping malls, filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 in Delaware on Sunday, December 10th. Preet emerged from a previous prepack case in 2020. In the new Chapter 11, the debtors target emergence in February 2024. 100% of the company's first and second lien lenders have signed on to a restructuring support agreement. The restructuring would equitize the debtor's $727 million second lien term loan facility, refinance the debtor's $306 million first lien facility via an exit term loan facility, provide liquidity through a $75 million new money exit revolving facility, and reinstate all property-level debt guarantees. Pre-petition first lien creditors are projected to receive 100% recovery, and second lien creditors are slated to receive 41%. At a first-day hearing last Monday, Judge Karen B. Owens granted the debtor's request for authority to make the $30 million interim draw on a $60 million senior secured debt facility provided by pre-petition second lien lenders. The court set the confirmation hearing for January 19th. Judge Craig T. Goldblatt approved Yellow Core's sale of 128-owned terminal properties and two leased properties to 21 winning bidders for an aggregate total purchase price of approximately $1.88 billion at an uncontested hearing last week. XPO Inc., the leading bidder, purchased 26 owned real properties and two leased real properties for $870 million. Separately, the debtors objected to nearly $6 billion in claims asserted by the Central States Pension Fund. Yellow calls these claims the key impediment to full payment of all creditors and a material recovery for equity in their Chapter 11 case, a conclusion consistent with REARC's own waterfall analysis. About $5 billion of the claims are for withdrawal liability from the pension fund, but Yellow, quote, should not have any meaningful withdrawal liability because the pension fund received $35.8 billion in special financial assistance for the U.S. Treasury under the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, according to investors. Judge John K. Sherwood approved the WeWork debtors' access to their first priority cash collateralized first out dip letter of credit facility from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and first priority dip last out term loan C facility from a SoftBank affiliate, along with the use of the secured party's cash collateral, both on a final basis at a consensual hearing last Monday. To resolve objections raised by landlords, the final cash flow order establishes a segregated stub rent reserve and clarifies that adequate protection liens only attach to lease proceeds, not the leases themselves or the lease premises. Rite Aid's final dip financing hearing and hearing on the debtor's motion to self-finance MedImpact's $575 million stocking horse bid for pharmacy benefit manager Elixir were adjourned to Tuesday, December 19th. At a hearing on Thursday, December 14th, Rite Aid's counsel announced that the debtors, the official committee of unsecured creditors, and the official tort claimants committee have reached a global settlement regarding the debtors' request for final approval of dip financing and cash collateral, but did not disclose the terms of the deal. SVB Financial Group's adversary suit against the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, seeking the recovery of approximately $1.9 billion of account funds held with Silicon Valley Bank, will proceed in U.S. District Court, not Bankruptcy Court, after a district court granted FDIC's motion to withdraw the reference. Council said the debtor is evaluating next steps in light of the ruling and will provide an update on the plan process in the near future. Judge Thomas M. Moran approved the Amherst debtor's disclosure statement at a hearing on Tuesday, overruling an objection from the ad hoc crossholder group. Amherst also kicked off a sale process for its lab-to-market assets, moving for approval of bidding procedures that would set a cash purchase price floor of $255.8 million. Shareholder defendants in litigation arising of Sycamore's LBO of the Jones Group, the publicly traded predecessor of retailer Nine West, petitioned for a panel hearing and rehearing en banc of a recent decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. 
The Second Circuit found that $78 million in payroll transfers made by Nine West to certain directors, officers, employees, shareholders of the Jones Group were not shielded from avoidance and recovery by the Nine West Litigation Trust under Bankruptcy Code Section 546E's Safe Harbor Provision. Judge Marvin Isger held an initial combined status conference in four post-confirmation cases implicated in a Jackson Walker professional fees dispute tied to former Judge David R. Jones. Jones resigned as a Southern District of Texas bankruptcy judge after revelations that he failed to disclose his romantic relationship with Elizabeth Freeman, a former Jackson Walker attorney. The U.S. trustee seeks disgorgement of Jackson Walker's fees in light of the conflicts of interest. A stipulation proposed by the U.S.T. and Jackson Walker would provide for the fee dispute to be heard in the Southern District of Texas. In Viva, Odyssey, Codavidi, Community Health Systems, GoTo Group, the Beauty Health Co., and Fisker ran out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings, new advisor hires, and new coverage names. Viva is in talks with its lenders about whether a default has occurred under its credit facility as a result of a violation of a contract in addition to debt and investment baskets under existing debt documents in the context of potential value leakage for secured creditors. Multiple delays of Odyssey's expected chapter loving filing are a result of negotiations around how much recovery to give to second lien note holders, even though first lien loans are substantially impaired. The company also needs to coordinate with the very busy Southern District of Texas Bankruptcy Court for its first day hearing in the aftermath of the revelation of former Judge David R. Jones' relationship with Elizabeth Freeman. Separately, Cross Ocean Partners bought a substantial portion of Odyssey's revolver. KKR is planning to finance its 50% stake purchase in Codavidi with a private credit loan from Blue Owl alongside tapping the broadly syndicated debt markets. The healthcare analytics company is valued in the $10 billion to $11 billion range. Community Health sold a billion dollars of new 10.875% secured notes due to 2032, which was upsized from $750 million. A second ad hoc group of creditors to go to is organizing Hulan Loki as financial advisor as a provider of unified communications and collaboration and password management solutions seeks to negotiate a transaction to cut debt. The Beauty Health Co., a manufacturer of equipment and associated consumables marketed under its flagship brand, Hydrofacial, had its reorg calculated adjusted EBITDA margin fall to just 3.8% in the third quarter, down from 17.9% in the same period last year, driven by higher manufacturing, labor, and overhead costs. Lower demand for the company's newest product, Sindeo, also led to a revenue drop year-over-year. Year. The company also the company's burned an increasing amount of free cash flow in each calendar year since 2019. Fisker, a manufacturer of electric vehicles, is likely to rely on continued draws on its recent convertible note financing, with Rear estimated the company will continue to burn cash in the fourth quarter as deliveries lag behind production. Fisker could burn almost a billion dollars of cash in the fourth quarter. Proceeds from the new convertible note financing may not be enough to support operations. Top red stories this week included North American primary surges amid rate cut bets as private issuers struggle with liquidity, Bank of England highlights risks in private credit, Moody's cuts China outlook to negative, Evergrande winding up hearing surprisingly adjourned as petitioner hesitates. Court opinion review, mass tort settlement funds, Invictus charges the mound, and J&J goes after the plaintiff's bar again. 3M Combat Arms MDL Court takes under advisement approval of a billion-dollar stock transfer of provisions of 3M Global Settlements. Over 99% of claimants have elected to participate in settlement. High rates, low MPL prices imply unsustainable capital structures. We are constructive on interim, due value, arrow, global, and RV basis. Cautious on Lowell, DDM due to refinancing and operating risk. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York bringing you the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. 
A longer schedule of the week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. After an adjournment last week, the Rite Aid debtors head back to court on Tuesday to seek final approval of their $3.45 billion debt facility. Last Thursday, the debtors announced that they had reached a global settlement with the official committee of unsecured creditors and the official tort claimants committee over the dip facility terms. The hearing on the debtors' motion to, quote, self-finance, unquote, the $575 million MedImpact stocking horse bid for pharmacy benefit manager Elixir was also adjourned and is set to go forward on Tuesday. On, on Thursday, our old friend, the Endo International sale hearing, is back on the calendar. The debtors adjourned the sale hearing in November. Since then, they've announced that they resolved, quote, several significant disputes, unquote, in mediation with the U.S. Department of Justice. They've also announced that they, quote, may be able to exit these cases either through the sale or a consensual plan, unquote, and that under either exit option, acquisition entities controlled by first lien creditors would own substantially all of the debtor's assets. The debtors are also seeking approval of their motion to enter into certain transaction steps that would, quote, ensure the company is well-positioned from an operational and tax perspective, unquote, to emerge from Chapter 11. Also on Thursday, the Celsius Network debtors are seeking approval to pivot to the so-called mining co-transaction to implement the orderly wind-down toggle under their confirmed plan. Under the wind-down toggle, the debtors are moving forward with a scaled-back, mining-only new co in lieu of a new co operated by Fahrenheit or backup bitter brick. The debtors say that the pivot is a response to the SEC's decision not to approve a pre-clearance letter required for registration of the new co stock under the proposed Fahrenheit transaction. The debtor selected U.S. Bitcoin instead of moving forward with BRIC because BRIC's bid was made, quote, obsolete, unquote, by progress made in monetizing illiquid assets securing non-mining services that BRIC would have provided. That's the highlight reel. For more of the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. We'll be taking a short hiatus for the holidays, but we'll be back in early 2024 with continued coverage of the latest developments in the leveraged finance and restructuring space, as well as more premium original content. 